0: Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris FX and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done more than 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris FX products for almost 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking to two of the editors of the TV series, The Last of Us, Timothy Good, ACE, and Emily Mendez. Tim edited the feature, Dead Man Down, and numerous TV series including The Umbrella Academy, The Resident, and others. Emily Mendez was an assistant editor on all nine episodes of The Last of Us and editor for four of them. She was an assistant editor on TV series like The Umbrella Academy and The Resident and an editor on the series Light as a Feather. Before I hop into our discussion with Tim and Emily about The Last of Us, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for macOS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from around the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris FX. I've been using Boris FX and Sapphire for almost 30 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers for all of us. Our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris FX is one of the important tools I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris FX Suite which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com. aotc that site also has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Timothy Good, ACE, and Emily Mendez on editing The Last of Us. I'd love to start with the relationship and how both of you guys started on the show. Let's let's do that. Tim, do you want to start and then Emily can fill in once you talk about her kind of
1: stepping up? Absolutely, yeah. Sort of funny, like, I'd never anticipated even getting this job. And I got this job very late, while they were already filming several months. And I had been trying to get this job for a long time as well. I am friends with Craig Mason, sort of. I was through my husband, who's a writer, and they would come over. He and his wife would come over with some other writers. We'd have Really fun uh, dinner parties in our house, and silly things we would do, like make seventies food and dare each other to eat them.
0: <laughs> jello molds, or what Je- are we talking about? Oh yeah,
1: jello molds uh, with raw vegetables inside. It was called ah. a cel- it was called a celebration salad, and I ate that up. So <laughs> and that's how I got the job, actually. Now, uh, no, seriously, but yeah, no. And Craig was at the time he was sort of showing us this trailer for a show he'd done called Chernobyl, and I just fell over watching it and said, I know I. Right now, I'm just this guy in the corner giving you drinks, but I'm also an editor. He goes, oh, yeah, I know your work, and I'd love to work with you at any point. And three years later, things don't always go as planned, scheduling-wise, and all of a sudden, almost everything fell into place. A director that we had worked with on Umbrella Academy was about to do Last of Us. He says, oh, I want you guys to do it. And I'm like, well, we've been trying to do it. That would be awesome. They already had all their editors lined up, but one of them had a scheduling conflict and dropped out, and that's when I got the call, and it was amazing. That's so fantastic. I was like, yeah, it was a wild one. And so I said to Emily, you know, we're, we might get this last of us show. And, uh, and could you explain your relationship to Emily? Oh yeah, of course. And Emily was my assistant editor at the time. Also my co-editor because I had been working with her for a couple of years and mentorship is a big part of what I do. And so she and I had been working together on the resident for a couple of seasons and had just done umbrella Academy season three together. And I knew somewhat about The Last of Us, but Emily, when I told her that we were going to be potentially doing The Last of Us, had a different
2: response. And that uh, was, Emily, go ahead. That was, I was like, we have to do this. Like, this is my favorite game. I loved the game. I, I played it years before, and I it just felt so surreal that he was like, well, we might be doing this show called The Last of Us. I was like, The Last of Us. So, yeah, it, it was great. <laughs> it's always good when
0: you get somebody that has a passion for the project
2: going
1: into it. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So. So we, were, we we went into it like that, and the first thing that they hand us is episode three, which is the Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett episode, which has sent the internet uh, to a tizzy, evidently. Yes, it did. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how we got on Yep. That's great. And so then tell me about, and
0: Emily, you can take it over from here. Tell me a little bit about your journey from being Tim's assistant to the work that you did on The Last of Us.
2: Sure. So Tim and I have been working together, like you said, for a few years. And during that time, I would co-edit when I could and also just absorb as much information from Tim as I could, because Tim is a wonderful mentor. He he's really like he allows his assistants to come into his room to sit to watch him edit. He explains things really well. He's a teacher and so I would just go and hang out in his room when I was done with my stuff for the day and just watch him cut these long surgery scenes on the resident because I was like, how do you do this? Like we had did that for many years. And then once we were on The Last of Us, Tim knew that I was able to cut. And so we started on episode three. I was able to cut a couple scenes for that episode and also working on sound design and all these other things with Craig Because Craig is very specific about his sound design. So I was already working pretty closely with Craig pretty early on when we were working on The Last of Us, getting the sound design to sound how he wanted. And so eventually it got to the point where we were working on many episodes back to back and Tim needed a little extra help. And so, Tim, do you want to? Yeah, well,
1: that's that's sort of when I was I'm like, okay, I have three episodes going and he wants me to start a fourth one. For, that's, for, that's a lot of work. Yeah. And, and, you know, i really lucky because for what, however this all uh, worked out, my sensibility, what I was doing, what I was bringing to the episodes was what he was looking for. And that was just sort of an amazing dovetailing of styles. And that really was wonderful. And Craig just said, I, you know, I want you to do as many of them as I can get you to do. And at some, a certain point, it's like, well, there's only so many hours in the day that you can do a great job. You can sure do it. You're just not necessarily going to do a great job. And knowing how supportive they have been in general to all of their crew, I just said, let's, I'm going to take a chance here and, and and risk it because I think that, you know, Emily is ready and she's in a position where she can help me. And also the story we were about to do was a story about two women who were in love and falling in love together. And I said, well, Emily is a lesbian and she would really understand this in a way that even I as a gay man won't have the entire nuances for and I think for Craig, that was really important to make sure all of these stories had a really a level of authenticity that he was really going for. And so I think between that sort of desire for authenticity and my need for relief, he saw the need to say, you know what, that's a good idea. And I, of course, I promised him like, if anything goes wrong, you know, I'll work weekends at nights and fix it all. And he says, oh, so I'm, I'm not really risking anything. I'm like, that's pretty much the way it is. So of course, I was gratefully correct. And I knew I would be because Emily's an incredible editor and she really just knocked out of the park the first episode we did together. And at that point it sort of became this partnership and every sort of step we took in the future was together and it was really great.
2: Yeah. And I'm, I'm very, it. I'm very, very lucky that Tim pushed to get me in there from the beginning with co-editing and that he believed in me so much and that Craig allowed that to happen. Cause that's not something that will always happen on shows. And so It just was one of those things where the timing worked out and then we just kept doing it together. Like it was great.
0: I wanted to talk to you, Emily, about the work that you did with Craig before he allowed you to be on this episode, which you mentioned some like sound design stuff that you did and and that kind of work. Talk to me about just what you think gaining his trust, having him know who you are as a person before you get this opportunity. Like it's, it's that, what's the old expression? Like luck is 90% being in the right place at the right time, whatever it is, perspiration. Yeah. And and also that you're there, that you, that someone knows who you are and knows that you're a hard worker.
2: Yeah, definitely. So I was just approaching the show as I do with all my work is just, I was just there doing my best working and making sure that the sound design from the beginning was in a place where I felt like it was complete. And then as Craig started listening to it, he would give feedback. Tim and I are always working to push the story forward. Like, what is working in sound to go alongside with the story? And so Craig's notes generally are are the same. Like, it's always very story-based. And so all of us really connect on this love and understanding for story. And so I felt that from the beginning, when Craig was giving notes for sound design, like, for instance in the pilot episode, the there's a big plane crash in, the, in this town, right? So Joel and Sarah and Tommy are in their truck, and then the plane crashes, and they're waking up in this town. And originally, the temp sound design that I had in there, it was kind of loud and chaotic, kind of just something that you would expect after a crash. But when Craig saw it, he said, you know, all these people have died from this crash. It should be quiet and it should be eerie. And then you hear a couple things here and there. And it really changed my whole perspective on like my approach to the sound design and what Craig wanted. Cause he's, he likes simple, but a real sound design. And so in a way I started to really try to approach it from that scene on in that way. And so I think as far as growing with Craig. It's just listening. Like I was just listening to him and trying to put his notes into effect in the cut the best way I could while helping the story. And that was how we kind of grew together as a team and and started working together in that way.
1: And she's being very modest. She's an excellent, <laughs> excellent sound designer. It's like ridiculous. She's one of the best I've ever seen. And so it was just like when she was putting these things together, he was like, oh, wow, these are this is great. So that's why it was working out so well um yeah. so I, I have to make sure that the world understands this is not just i was throwing in sound effects it was well. i was putting in the right sound effects at all times and he was recognizing how talented she was and seeing right there it's like oh this is someone who really has a really deep level of taste level
2: yeah i mean and craig and i both we love sound design like we like, genuinely love it and it's such a huge part of it. And I love getting a scene and then adding the sound design and then seeing how that scene flourishes from it and, and what you can do and how much it affects it. It's like this final piece of a puzzle when you're temping stuff. And and it's just one of those things that I truly enjoy. So it did really help me and, and Craig DeBond because we both share that. So
0: can you think of an example, either one of you, about sound? really affecting a scene other than the 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 great one you gave of the plane crash but sure. like maybe even specific sounds in that scene that that affect
2: Well, in that specific scene, the thing that I think is really cool is we had we were very specific about what sounds we were hearing. So you would hear maybe an infected in the distance. So we were playing with like perspective where they are in the town. And then they're hearing things that are scary that are farther away. And it's it's disorienting. So they're they're disoriented and they don't really know you know, what's going on, but you're hearing infected, but you're maybe hearing a gunshot or is it a transformer? And so you like blowing in the distance and you don't know exactly what you're hearing. And and, in the way, I think it adds to that fear in that scene. And it really gives it that, that eerie feeling of like, what is going on? Where am I? And how do I get out of this place? So I think it really was effective in that way.
0: Tim, any thoughts on, on sound and um, things that you heard? that you were like, oh, that that really helps the
1: scene. Yeah, I mean, what was really fun to do sound-wise, and this was a, a plan that Emily and I hatched together And the final episode, was during the massacre in the hospital. And it was sort of originally the idea, if you're playing the game, perhaps, you would do it where you'd hear all the gunshots and you would feel a sort of a battle sequence kind of feeling, which we had done in episode five. That had already been done with the bloater and all that stuff. But this was a, an, a sequence where sound had to take a, a back seat. Craig had said, this is not a scene about action. This is a scene about emotion, even though it's an action scene. And so I said, well, Emily, what if we were to play with how much we hear the real world and how much we hear what is in, internal to Joel? And so we picked a, a musical track that would go against what we would expect which was a very emotional, evocative, operatic piece of music that played against what was actually happening on the screen, which was this sort of massacre, and he's taking everyone down. But it, I feel it was really effective in helping the audience to connect with the internalized rage that he was feeling and and how he really wanted desperately to get Ellie back, this person who he pretended he would never you know, love, and he thought we'll keep our histories to ourselves, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But ultimately, at a certain point, his parental instincts just cannot be stopped. And he has to he has to do anything it takes to get her back. And I felt like that would get into his mind in the most effective manner. And also because you make these things and there's lots of loud sounds, it's hard for you to emotionally connect, I feel. And so the more muted the soundtrack became and the more amorphous and ethereal it felt, the more emotionally connected I feel that the audience became to Joel because there was just not a lot of volume to the, to the soundtrack, as it were. And I just, I don't know, there's something about doing those things that, that go against all the expectations that I just love doing. And I just feel like that's the kind of stuff that makes the job of editing so much fun.
0: One of the other things that I heard you mention was that when you handed off that one episode to Emily, you felt like she would understand the characters, she would know them. You edited episode three, which was about two gay men. Talk to me about not necessarily your specific empathy as a member of a community, but all that and also just a human empathy of, I could edit a a scene with two gay men and could understand, oh, well, they're in love like I'm in love with my wife, you know. For sure. Let's talk about empathy a little bit and how, why you saw that as a value and what Emily was going to do and why it was a, ve- a value for
1: you? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> I'm loving it. I mean, ultimately, empathy is what I think makes editors spectacular. And it's not a technical job. It's a psychological, emotional job. And the more you connect to the people that you're looking at and the the, the characters that you're trying to show the audience you want the audience to connect with these people whether or not they're good people necessarily or bad people like they may be bad but they may they also should be relatable you must be you have to understand them so everything i do comes from a place of why are they doing what they're doing and how can i see what they're doing and how can i show the audience why they're doing what they're doing and so I feel tremendous empathy for the characters of Bill and Frank. As a gay man, it was easy for me to, to connect, maybe a little bit more so because I understood sort of the secret language that has to happen between two men that not, may not have to happen between a man and a woman in, when you're first meeting and you're starting to sort of suss each other out. So that helped me find little nuances that maybe someone who's not a person of this community would... Doesn't mean it wouldn't be a, still a great job. It's just maybe there was a little bit more, maybe there was a little bit extra, and that was the thing that helped me in episode three, and I know for sure helped Emily in episode seven with the story of Ellie and Riley because again it was a it's a it's a, it's a similar thing, but also between two women and their teenagers. I just didn't have that experience, so I I'm like I don't know what that experience feels like, and Emily's like trust me I do. And so therefore I was like, yes, this is going to be the right thing. But, you know, again, your question is about empathy and and you're 100% right is that it's really about having an understanding of, of what that human characters just want what they want ultimately is to feel needed, to feel enveloped in love, they want to live a, su- a successful life and what that successful life looks like is a, a life where you feel like you have a purpose. And in that way, the episode 103 episode with Bill and Frank was really easy to, to create empathy for, because it was really about everyone. And, you know, Craig Mason, who's a straight man wrote this and said, I wrote this about these two people and I wanted to show in a way, my relationship with my wife. And it's, it's, it's no different. It's this, it's a story of longevity and a story of commitment. And so to empathize with these characters who make a commitment to each other, is it's just a beautiful thing to be able to put together it really is
0: yeah emily thoughts on your episode and the empathy you felt with the characters
2: yeah so that was definitely an experience that i had been through growing up you know falling in love with your best friend not knowing if they feel the same i think Mm -hmm. i was truly able to pull from my experience to you know get pieces into the cut that to me felt real but ultimately even if i hadn't have experienced that tim and i are always watching through every piece of footage and we're always marking up everything we see. For me when I'm marking up dailies, if I see a moment in a character where it feels real to me or I feel some kind of emotion, I will always mark it and I'll try to get it into the cut because we are trying to incorporate that empathy into our scenes if, you know, it calls for it. But we're also just trying to make our characters feel real and support them cuz the whole thing that we're doing in our jobs is to just Bring to life these characters, these beautiful characters that Craig has written on the page and then our great actors have brought to life. And so, you know, we're very lucky that we have such talented actors that gave us so much to work with in these episodes. Bella and Storm in the Left Behind episode just gave us so much to work with. And so when I was watching those dailies, I was feeling before I even had the scenes together and I was like, this is just great. And I, I loved every second of it. It's just was pulling those little pieces together that were just real to me, that make my heart feel something. It's just a feeling I get when I'm working. And so that that's how I do it. That's how I put together kind of that empathy and that feeling.
0: Yeah, I love it. But there's also that overall empathy, like neither one of you have been fathers to a daughter that died or something, yeah. and yet you're able to cut those scenes
2: too. Exactly. 100%.
1: That's absolutely uh, correct. It's connecting to another, another human being. Even just seeing the two of them talk the final episode about his suicide attempt and him opening up to her, it was about her understanding that he's, uh, he's finally releasing himself to her and saying, I'm going to trust you. And for me to understand and decode that that moment is about an understanding of the trust between a a daughter and a father in in, in a way that maybe I would understand between my, my dad and myself. So I I, I sort of looked at it from the Ellie perspective and saw it in that, in that way. But yeah, a hundred percent, it is, you gotta have empathy for this job.
0: One of the other things I heard Emily say, which I I loved her fearlessness in talking about it, because it happens to all of us is she went for What she thought was the right idea of putting this plane crash audio together probably was fantastic, sounded great, but not what Craig wanted. Talk to me a little bit about ego and being able to say, oh, well, I didn't totally fail. I just didn't have his idea. Right. Talk to me a little bit about taking a note, for example.
2: Sure. Tim sets this great standard where he is always open to notes from anyone. Like he'll invite people into his room play a scene, ask people how they feel has included me on in that since I was very early on an assistant for him. What from before I was his assistant, he would call me because we knew each other for a couple of years. We were both on the same show, just not working directly together. He would call me into his room then. So he's always set this standard of, you know, notes are not a bad thing. It's a collaborative effort. And both of us have the same feeling like it's all about collaboration. It's all about getting the story to where it needs to go. So for us, or at least for me, when I'm, you know, getting notes, I'm always looking at it as this is the new directive. And this is the new kind of like, it's like an an ever evolving puzzle in a way. So I'm always trying to get the scene to how Craig wants or whoever is giving the notes. So it can be the best it can be. Because, you know, we put a scene together, you know, in our first pass, it's not going to be exactly how it is in the end. That's just the way it's going to be. And so I feel it's a much easier route to just be open and and to accept these notes and to take them as a good thing. Because I mean, that's the only way the story is really going to get to a place where it can shine sometimes, because sometimes we don't get it in the first pass. And that's okay.
1: Completely. I completely agree with everything Emily said. And the thing about notes in my, I, anytime I've worked something more so than a normal editor's cut, it's gotten better. And so I go, how can it not get better. We just have to keep working with it and new discoveries are going to happen. If you just are accepted as functional, then it may not reach its full potential. I've learned that early on when I was mentored myself, where I was being told, keep making changes, keep making changes, because the whole process is what is that what it's about. is about making adjustments and then new discoveries are going to happen. And then at a certain point, you're going to say, all right, this one's done. We really got to the place we should be at. And now we're really good. We've gone through every iteration and we've landed on the thing that works the best. Um, and if you don't do that, and I've seen a lot of people who say, oh, this is you know exactly how I did it the first time. I'm like, well, yay. But I don't think of it as, my ego is not about that. My ego is about what is the story affecting people in the world. And if the story affects people in the world, then I'm happy. And it's, it's my great joy to have people respond in a way that says, hey, you know, this really helped me talk to my mom about some stuff. This really helped me talk to this person. And I've heard from my my father from the, for the first time in a long time. That's the joy that I think we get out of these things. And you know, editors are very emotional people and we want to see our work, you know, recognized. And this is the way that it gets recognized. And it's a beautiful way, is that people around the world will say this, you created these, these moments and these connections and these stories that really helped us all see our, our families and friends in a different way.
0: Let's talk about the the idea that Emily mentioned about seeing truth in performances and just as you're going through dailies, either how you note that, how you find it and how you use it, those
1: moments of truth. Okay. That's a good question. We have a, uh, a methodology and that's like, we have this sort of weird locator system. We call them the, the, the colors and each color has got a different heat map to it as it were. So a green locator is a good thing, and you definitely want to get a green locator. And a green locator means, hey, that that really hit me, you know, that was a good moment. That could be useful. Could be is the the operating word. Could um, be, yep. Yeah, it works. And then once in a while, something comes along that we look at and go, oh my god, that is incredible, stunning, and it must be in. It must be in. It is in the film, and we put down a magenta marker. So it's the magenta marker. And we will put that down and basically say, this has to make it in. There's no way. And and, and if we go back to this daily and I look, seeing a magenta marker and I cut it in and it's not been in there, I go to myself, what are you thinking? Because this was the thing that you saw the very first time around and it affected you in such a way that you said, this is magnificent. Because again, editors all know this, but we only see things once, you know, and have a fresh eye once. And so you can only approximate the feeling you get. And so we could throw down a magenta marker when there's something that great. And so a lot of times what I'll do is when creating and using these moments of truth is we'll just sort of cut the scene and see where, see how many green locators show up in the scene and they go, oh, there's them. There's, there's a couple of them. Cool. And as you're doing notes and changes, you use those green locators and you sort of replay them again and you see if there's anything in them that now functions, you know, sort of like re-rolling or replay a camera roll and seeing things new again, going, oh, fresh perspective. And it's a way to sort of sneakily go through and, and just sort of see as many of the reactions that you had marked in the beginning. I mean, obviously you can still watch it all over again, but this is a way to like sort of go through very efficiently and find those things. And of course, if there's that magenta marker that you, you, you see and you go, why is this not in there? What do you, what did you do? There may have been a magenta marker that was better. And that does happen sometimes. And you go, well, I guess that one trumps this one. But that's how I would generally approach is it. Like it's, it's knowing that those moments of truth exist in the dailies that we have put a little like little ding, 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 little bell on. And and as you're going through and building the scene and you'll see these little green, oh, there's another one. There's another one. That's right. That's right. I remember this one. It sort of is a, a snowball effect of good things that happen. That's kind of how I do it. Emily, do you have a different methodology there?
2: I totally use your same methodology because I think it's great and it's helped me many times. And I also love how excited we get about the magenta markers. Like when Tim and I are like watching scenes together, like he'll be like, oh, this was the magenta marker or I'll be like, that was the magenta marker. And he's right. Like it's stuff that we we mark for ourselves to remind to, to remind ourselves to use it. And I actually have an example where I didn't use the magenta marker, which was When we have the character Anna, who's Ellie's mother, and she's just had Ellie, and Ellie's, you know, she's just given this is episode nine. Yeah, the the, the finale episode. And so she's just given birth to Ellie. And originally that scene, it was a little shorter when she first says hi to Ellie. And when Craig first watched the scene, he said he wanted there to be a longer moment between Anna and Ellie of her like taking in her baby, like taking in this joy of this baby. And so, when I looked back at the dailies, I had two magenta markers that I had not used. And I put both of those pieces in. One was like the shot of the little baby feet by the jacket. And then I think one another one was like the little hands. Like it was this little tiny cuteness moments where I was like, these are like again, they made my heart feel something. So I they got the magenta marker. And both of those I put into the second pass of this cut and then Craig loved it. And I was like, why didn't I have my magenta markers in from the beginning? So like Tim's saying, like, it's this it's you're watching the, the dailies for the first time. It's your best way of like marking like this made me feel a certain way. And I think it's great. I, I love everything about the magenta markers and our whole locator <laughs> system. So.
0: Magenta markers—that is not the color I would have gone for. What's the uh, thought behind the color magenta? Like I would—I uh, know yellow, red.
1: Yeah, no, it's, pure, it's purely for alliteration. It's just because it's a magenta marker. So that's <laughs> okay. it. it's,
0: it's alliterative. All right. I'm trying to that's think of it. another good M color, but I can't think of one. You
1: can't so. do it. Yeah, mar- oh, but mar- what if it was really a locator?
0: Work. Lavender locators.
1: Lavender locators. Oh wow! Yeah. That yeah. could work, lavender locators.
0: All right. Th- that's very interesting about the markers. And those are the only two colors for, y- for the both
1: of you? Generally. Yeah, we, I mean, we, like...
2: Yeah, go ahead. There's like a blue
1: mar- locator that's if there's a B camera. And I, I want to differentiate if it's in a group clip. If it's a B camera that I'll watch separately, or if it's a C camera, it's a yellow marker. Sometimes if you have a C camera. And so I can tell right away, you know, flip to the other camera. That's where it was. Oh, because uh,
0: you're looking at multicam footage, but you yeah. might not be looking at the right angle.
1: That's correct. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it helps. It's, it's usually down. all grouped together. I, I'm one of those strange editors who can't work with a very crowded bin. I just can't do it. It's just, it's, if there's too many frames. I freak out. And so I keep everything in groups and I just go, I know how many cameras are in this one. I know how many cameras are in this one. And so I just mark individual one, one time, multiple colors. And then I use that multigroup clip as the, the as the the one I use forever. Got it. And the colors tell you which
0: which. Tell me where to go. For. Got That's it. That's right. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do I definitely do markers on things I think are great, but also my assistants. It's a uh, marker on the slate, marker on action, marker on cut, and also markers on resets. Different resets colors. for sure. Oh yeah. Yep. We got those too. We
1: got the red is for action, <laughs> uh, yellow is for restart, or red is for re- 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 reaction. Oh yeah, all that. So yep. yeah, It's a crowded house of color. That's
0: great. I love it. Let's talk a little bit about the special effects. When you were trying to tell the story during dailies, what, what were you doing to either imagine or use previs or slates or what did you have to do to build some of those very heavy VFX
1: scenes? We were lucky. You know, we have an amazing team. And you know, the way Craig wanted everyone to work is we were all working together in an office together, all of us. So the visual and effects who's, department was
0: okay, who with who's us. All of us.
1: Oh, the visual effects department was a huge part of this production. Let's say it was a massive department. And there were like, I don't know, 14 people that were just sort of hanging out with post-production. And that was fantastic. We really were able to interface. We had wonderful visual effects editor, Luke Botteran, and we interfaced with him all the time when we had things that were like, oh, we have here's a here's a plate do you know if there's any previous coming in with this oh yeah i have previous for that let me take that from you i'll put this behind these shots etc i'd have a scene together and i say i'm not sure what's supposed to go behind here i could talk to alex wong our visual effects supervisor because he's right next door and i say alex what goes behind here and what are we looking for and how many shots are we budgeting for here and how can i blow past that budget and he would just sort of look at me like come on But no, seriously, they were really instrumental in helping guide us through it because we had so much on our plate that it was hard for us to even sort of focus on on all of the things that were flying around because we had basically seven hours of stuff going in our head at all times, or eight hours, I should say. And so having them nearby really just allowed us to have temporary materials that were put in all the time. They had an enormous amount of support staff with them that would do that for us. So that we had something to show. We had something that had some sort of story happening that you underst- that you could actually understand. It wasn't perfect, of course, but luckily we work with people who understand that perfect comes later and they can tell the story through you know, rudimentary temp, you know, visuals and whatnot. How much of the infected scenes, some of
0: the like fight or chase scenes were prosthetics? How many of them were
1: three... Pure 3D. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had a huge prosthetics team led by Barry Gower. One who did all Game of Thrones stuff. And so a lot of it was prosthetics. And Craig and Neil really wanted, Neil Druckmann, the co-creator of the show, they really wanted to utilize as much prosthetic as possible with VFX enhancement. So for, I can give you an example. In the third episode, when Ellie kills the infected underneath the Cumberland Farms, that infected was fully sort of prosthetic out except for his right eye had a little just a little green marker over the eye because they knew they were going to do something with visual effects and so a company in norway actually that Mm -hmm. i actually went i went to visit them called storm uh, studios and they actually took just a section of it and created this fungal bloom out of the eye and then they made Mm -hmm. some i know right and it was so real looking that nobody could No one was. Everyone was sort of like shocked at how real it looked, and I think the reality of it is achieved because we were blending prosthetic with visual effects. So there was like a sense of texture that was being brought along that it wasn't all fake, and so you had this semblance of of realism. And then there was just a little portion of it that was enhanced, and they would they enhanced a few other things on that on those shots as well. But that was kind of one of the things that made, I believe, the infected sequences look so scary is because it was partially real the one character that is all cg is the bloater character in episode five they created the full bloater suit and they actually had the guy in the suit for the filming of all the dailies of the sequences because wisely they understood that these people who are being attacked by this character they it's hard for them to react in in a natural way without something actually there not just like a little tennis ball chasing them and so they had this huge British bodybuilder in the suit and he was running at them. And so they actually were scared and it allowed the visual effects department to scan the suit that, that Barry Gower and his team had created and allowed them so much more detail at the sort of the intricacies and the anomalies of the suit. So it wasn't this perfect thing. So when you see that character in the show, you can't really believe it's CGI. It, it feels like it's real. And... It's mostly because they, they did a whole passive of it with a real prosthetic and then they swapped out for the plates at the end. People were in much more in, in fear and and the ability to see how the firelight would play off the prosthetic allowed visual effects to do a better job of integrating the character. So all of those things helped to create a CGI character that just was seamlessly integrated.
0: And, and the, that was done in... Just some of the takes and not all of them? Because oh, it was I, all of them. I just talked, oh, I was all of them. Because the yeah, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy guys, I just talked to them and they said oh, yeah? that Sean Gunn would be in the first take of each oh. setup. And then in the other takes, it was just
1: a tennis ball, basically. Yeah, well, oh. no, that's pretty smart. But no, no, they really had this bodybuilder. They made him work out for it. He was in all of them. So, and they only did the little plates at the very end. And that was that. So I was just using the plates for the, the character to be inserted later, but he was doing all the work and the body of the scenes. For a tech geek question, sure. when you did that, you were
0: cutting with the bodybuilder and then carrying the plate underneath on a track? Yep.
1: Was that yep. That's exactly right. And then when the time came, the plate would be turned over and then we would get an animation back from Weta and then that, that animation would then be cut in and then I'd recreate the edit with the animation. But yes, it was tricky to do at, at first because we had to use the prosthetic for people to understand what was going to actually happen. But we also knew that the prosthetic was going to be enhanced a thousand percent. So, of course, I would do little tricks like speed up here and there, take frames out to try and give it a little bit more of a sense of more otherworldly inhuman, just in the process of trying to just sell the sequence. But we always knew that it was going to be a plate show. And it was it was kind of fun to watch that version too, uh, yeah. Because it was like there's nobody there.
2: So. <laughs>
0: and I think I saw a behind the scenes, might have been episode two that seemed like it was all 3D, where the where the truck goes through the ground and the infected come pouring yeah. out of the out of the crater.
1: Yeah, that yeah, was that was episode five. Yeah, that was cool. Oh, episode
0: five. Oh wow, yep. that late.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep yep no that was a great one that that truck was a cgi truck it went all the way under and then the infected coming out was actually a combination because again they're so good at this they understand that a combination of real people and digital characters is what gives the the, the sense of realism Is that there are real textures that are interacting with fake textures and those fake textures then blend in and you kind of see the reality of it all so all those, some of those creatures were created to have more speed and velocity than the actual human beings that were in full prosthetics and that was a series of background extras in full prosthetics that were rushing out of that hole it was crazy and they did it many many times and i was amazed that nobody really got hurt so but they're always about safety there so that's why i'm sure nobody got hurt emily any thoughts on
0: vfx and dealing with those and trying to either use your imagination or what you were doing throughout the process of a VFX shot
2: sure I'm like Tim said I mean the mixture of them using prosthetics a lot of the time really helps so if we had like the CNN left behind when Elliot and Ellie and Riley are attacked by the infected that's a guy like he had prosthetics on he was pretty scary before they even touched anything on him like we had our actors reacting to normally like real things and 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 so I think that that Made a difference, and 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 it helped with the edit too to be able to see you know these infected characters right there. So really, for the most part, we had visual effects helping us just kind of in that regard. But there is a scene in Left Behind where we did have to picture like what was happening, and and that was when Ellie goes into the mall and the lights are not on yet, and then she is looking out, and that shot the mall coming to life that is just Bella Ramsey standing in front of a blue screen. So that was one where our visual effects team had to really fill in everything for us. And so in the edit, when I was uh, I I was able to cut that scene, the way that we got that working was I started with sound. So, so what does it sound like when the mall's coming to life? So in order to kind of time that scene, I started with the big, like heavy, like metal turning on. And we kind of did this cool little rhythmic thing with that. And then we had Alex working directly with us with the visual effects and, and him and Luke were getting us these passes of the temp mall coming to life. So that was definitely one where we did have to use our imaginations a little bit and and use the help of sound and, and Bella's reaction to get us in, in the right place for that. So,
0: I love the idea that you mentioned that you started with sound. I, I've even heard from the VFX guys that the sound helps them like that. They're like, oh, I can, I can work. This gives me something to work with.
2: Yeah, exactly. And we, th- yeah, so we had that sound in from the very beginning and then Craig worked closely with them to get it exactly how he wanted, but but the sound was was the, one of the first things for that that we had, so.
1: Yeah, it definitely allowed them to figure out how the picture was going to be adjusted and how they could feel that the lights were turning on in sequence mm-hmm. uh, once you, you had done that. And they, you know, the way they did it, they turned around on Ellie. On they had practical lights that were replicating that. And so we were able to look at the way that they were turning on in her eyeballs and see how that was happening. Yep. Mm.
0: Well, I want to start with Emily with this question, which is more about the structure or building tension in that episode, because of course, as an audience, you're like, Oh, this has got to be a dangerous, scary place, but it's being presented as, Hey, we're all safe here. It'll be fun. Talk to me about what it took to build tension in that scene leading up to what you know is going to happen, they're going to be attacked. Sure, But, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. And then it, Tim can maybe follow up with an episode of his where he had to build that kind of tension. And
2: Yeah, well, this is a fun one because, so in Left Behind, we have that scene where we see the infected come to life, right? So after that point, you know that he's going to be lurking or attacking them at some point. What's great about what Tim and I decided to do is we continued to just cut normally as we would, because the thing is our characters don't know that that guy has woken up or is anywhere. So we felt it was best to just continue cutting it the way that we would normally cut it because Ellie and Riley are in their own world. And so it's for us to stick with our character kind of approach. It's kind of like not doing anything about leading the audience to like, see that the infected is going to come at any point we we just basically are continuing to approach it as we normally would. So that was interesting about that and as far as building tension once you see that infected come to life you as an audience member know it could happen but it, but again like we're not going to give you much more until it actually happens. So i i think that was a fun way to do that.
0: Did you was that shot of the infected guy coming to life was that in the place that it was in the script or cuz obviously they shot that you could have put that the scene before he arrived or they you could have put it at the beginning of the episode. It could have gone anywhere, right?
2: It's where it is scripted because the idea is that they're playing in this arcade and they're being very loud and so they're screaming and they're excited and so their noises are drifting down this hallway and it wa- awakens this infected. And so that is the idea. So it, it's where it was scripted, yeah.
0: And then obviously you also, when you're dealing with setting up the infected guy, you're also dealing with the sound of it being part yeah. of the story.
2: Yeah, definitely. So when he wakes up, we originally, Tim had done like a temp, which is fun when we're temping in these things. Tim had done this like temp, like big, deep breath, like the, of the infected waking up, which we had in there for a while and it's not in there anymore. But it was a, it was kind of good to get the feeling of like this big intake of breath and we pitched it down. So he sounded really creepy. That was kind of how we, we started temping in the feeling of the infected waking up. Yeah. So
1: yeah, otherwise Tim is not creepy. Trust me. So he had to be he had to be pitched down, although my work still lives on in left behind because I am the photo booth bunny. And that is my voice. So.
2: Yeah, we got Tim's voice into the photo booth scene pretty early on and it just stuck. And then they decided to keep it. And it's in there to this day. And it makes me laugh every time I see that scene because it's Tim. It's just Tim pitched up as a bunny. So it's yeah,
0: very funny. Yeah. Exactly. Tim, any thoughts on building tension and yeah. and how you, like, when you choose to put in a shot that sets the audience up so that they're always on edge?
1: Yeah. And I have a specific instance, and it's in episode four. There's a sequence where Joel and Ellie have crashed into this laundromat, and they've been attacked by these two guys. And there's a sequence where the two guys have been taken out at this point. But what they didn't know is that there was another kid who was behind the building, And he gets, catches Joel off guard and Joel is attacked by him and he's about to die. And then Ellie has to use a weapon for the very first time we think. So the audience thinks, and I loved doing that sequence for tension. I absolutely loved it because a lot of what I love with tension is not allowing the audience to see certain things. You're not going to get to see this. You are not going to get to see what's happening with Joel. You're going to have to live with what's happening with Ellie. And you're going to have to, and again, it completely dovetails into this idea that if you're playing a with the character, then the char- you're, you're experiencing what the character is experiencing and you're not breaking out of that, give the audience an omniscient perspective of what's going on. So in that sequence, I remember very clearly the fun part of it was, number one, when the one of the guys comes in and Joel has to shoot him, we never showed the guy or Joel shooting. We only showed Ellie terrified that she was going to be caught. And I love that because, again, we had all the footage uh, that we could have used to show what happened logically, that this guy came over here, he came over there, Joel shot him from here, and then he goes down. But instead, by sticking with just Ellie, you feel an enormous amount of worry because you don't know where the guy is and you have no idea you know, what's going to happen. And, and even the shock when it happens, I remember going, for a second, you may think who just got shot because you don't know. Until it's revealed, oh, the other guy's on the ground. Joel's the one who who fired successfully. And then when the other guy bounces in, you have to then are stuck with Ellie. And you have to. she has to go rescue him because she doesn't know what's going on with Joel. All she can do is hear. And so I wanted to prevent the audience from seeing what's happening with Joel so that they could feel the tension of being with Ellie. And I broke that only one time because there was a moment where I really had to understand that there was a real threat to Joel's life. And there was a really great shot of Pedro being strangled. And I said, well, it's a threat to character, so it still works. And so it was, my rule was always, if it's about the character or a threat to the character, then those shots are functional and I'm used them. But in that specific instance, it was great to, to play everything from Ellie's perspective. We were never with any other characters because again, it prevented the audience from having any kind of comfort is to knowing what was going on. And that's how I love to play with tension in that way, is I like to prevent the audience from always knowing what's going on. Because again, if they know what's going on, if they see, if they could even predict for one second what's about to happen because they've seen something that the other character who you're supposed to be following has not seen, then it doesn't work. You know, you've blown it. And I think that that sequence is one of my favorite sequences because of the tension it creates in the audience by withholding their ability to see what's going on.
0: I, it's so funny because I, I've only seen the show through once and I remember that scene. And what I remember is not at all what actually happens, the plot. My memory is of Ellie and her fear of what's going on and, and am I going to be left alone forever?
1: Yeah. For am sure. I going to
0: be discovered? Am I going to be
1: found? Yeah, absolutely. So if that if that's what you're thinking, then we're doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> it is Emily. Can you think of any scenes where you
0: used character perspective, where maybe you could have shown something outside of a character's perspective, but you chose? I'm really going to play this scene from one character.
2: Hmm, interesting. Let's see. Well, there's a moment I, I'm thinking of, and and one thing that Tim and I talked about early on when we were working on episode three, and there was a scene I had cut where. Ellie finds a gun in Frank's, like in a little dresser in Bill and Frank's house. And so originally, when I had cut that scene, you see she looks into this drawer and she sees the gun right before she picks it up. And Tim said, Well, what if we do the scene where she looks in the drawer, she sees something, but we don't see what she sees yet. So when I recut it this way, it kind of started this whole thing where we started to call this mini mysteries. Like mini mysteries were kind of this new thing that we, Well, Tim has always done this, but we started calling it mini mysteries at this point. That's right. And so basically this idea that a character can see something, but you might not see what they see initially because it's kind of this mini mystery. So the moment that I'm thinking of is later on in Left Behind, Ellie and Riley have just had this talk about Riley uh, leaving with the fireflies. And Riley says she's got one more thing for Ellie. And so then Riley gets up and she, she walks away. And we had plenty of footage to show what she's doing. She's going over and she's grabbing masks. But I stayed with Ellie in my initial cut because I felt that the point of view, we wanted to stay with Ellie. We wanted to see her kind of taking in that her friend is leaving because it just emotionally felt that was like that was where we needed to be. And then we have Riley say like, hey, and she like throws her this mask. So you don't see this mask. You don't know what Riley's doing. You're with Ellie. So we're sticking with her and then this mask kind of arrives and Ellie catches it. And then what's kind of cool is like this mask is is a very iconic mask from the game. So it's like you kind of get that surprise by also dealing with the mini mystery of like what's Riley doing over there? So I, I just think that sometimes that's kind of a cool way to deal with the scene. Tim has taught me that these mini mysteries really do pay off because you kind of get your audience being like, huh, like what's happening over there? Oh, what is that? Is that a mask? It's the mask from the game. So that's just an example of one of those moments.
1: It's like a five second mystery. That's the best part about it. it yeah, yeah, have, yeah. There's so it doesn't have to last short. long.
2: Yeah, exactly. But, but that's
1: the beauty of it, is that for five seconds the audience is going, Well,
2: what is that? So, and
1: yeah. then you and then you you don't you don't tease them for too long. What's, the What's exactly. in the drawer? Exactly. What's, oh, the the What's really in the drawer? Oh, it's the gun. What's in the What's box? What's in the box? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got it.
0: I wanna ask Tim, since we already know Emily was a huge fan of the game. I, believe it or not, did not know. I mean, I I knew once I started watching the series that it was based on a game, but when I first heard about the series, I did not know that. Tim, did you know anything about this game and did you decide to play it
1: during or before you started editing it? (laughs) I didn't know much, honestly. And it was a weird thing because I got, again, I got the job late and I'm like, I don't, I don't even have time to even play this game because A, it's on a. PlayStation, which I don't have, and like you can't, and you can't get them; they're impossible to get. So there was just like no way I was going to do it. And then I remembered I had a job a decade ago for Bad Robot, and one of the producers over there said, "Don't know too much, because if you know too much." And I said, "Well, wait, you don't want to read the scripts?" Like he's like, "No, don't read the scripts, because if you know what's going to happen, then you're going to wait for it to happen, and then you're going to know what's happening and the left. So maybe it's better that you know." as little as possible, because then when you approach everything that comes into your your brain and, and your process, there is nothing attached to it. And you're just going to put it together in a way that you think is is, is the best. And you're going to be able to know if something's working or something's not, because you have no preconceived ideas about what it is. And so I said, well, you know, that's not a bad risk. And I kept thinking also that because I don't play games and video games per se, there's going to be a lot of people like me who aren't going to know this and like me exactly like you exactly like like Steve and so I said there has to be an ambassador for that person and I'm happy to do that because I think and also I think what happened was I just wasn't as I know this seems silly but I wasn't as nervous about like living up to the game because I didn't know what the game was and luckily Emily you know had, knows the game so she would like be like yeah this is good yeah. you know you're doing good so she would make sure that, you know, and there were little things she would adjust me. And she goes, this you're going to want to pay attention to. Uh, And I go, okay, great. Tell me a little bit about that. So she would, and Craig would do the same. He's like, ah, like what you did, except here, I want you to pay attention to this. Can you think of any examples of those things
0: other than like, for for example, the mask that Emily just mentioned, I had no idea that mask was in the
1: game and that it would be a important reveal. It's critical. I got a couple of examples for you. In the third episode, Ellie and Joel are packing to go away. They're packing the truck up, and they're just randomly putting some clothes together. And we had so much different coverage of things that they were putting away. They were putting away cans. They are putting away whiskey. They were putting away toilet paper. And then Emily just saw this red shirt coming out of uh, a women's clothing thing. And she goes, Tim, that shirt is critical. And it's going to be a great little mini mystery for our little friends who played the game because they're going to know that, the, that that this red shirt is the iconic shirt that she wears for the second part of the story. And if we just show the back of it, so you can't even see the front, and you just see the color, and she looks at it and goes, and then puts it in in the bag, they're going to go nuts. And then later on, when you reveal her in the shirt, they're going to go, that's the shirt. So there was a little moment where she's like, if there's anything we have to keep in this montage, it's that, because that is a critical little moment for keeping in the game. There was a second thing, and I forgot what it was. Emily, do you remember-
2: Uh Yeah, so it's the same episode, episode three, and it's when Joel and Ellie are going into a gas station, and Ellie runs up to the Mortal Kombat ga- game. Oh she's yeah, like yeah, I, had fr- I had a I had a friend that knew everything about this game, and I said to Tim, I was like, you know, what she's talking about right, and he was like, of course no, no. and uh, I was like, that's she's talking about Riley, who's super important, and will be coming up, you know, later. So
1: he's like, so um, make sure you. Uh- Make sure you do something special over here and make sure it means something. Yeah. And don't just say, you know, don't just offer it up to cut because who cares about this arcade game? Yeah. You
2: know? And th- these were good little details that we like w- that I was able to talk to Tim. We were able to get in there early that Neil and Craig would have gotten these in there eventually. But I think it just helped our it helped our pipeline to like have those in there early on in the cuts that Tim and I were turning in. So yeah, it and made,
1: it it made them very happy to know that we were thinking about these things that they had meticulously designed.
0: Yeah. I love the the idea that you mentioned with the shirt, your angle on the shirt, because some of those reveals, I would think it's important to even not just that they happen, but that you're on a certain angle or that you reveal it, or there's a motion like the mortal Kombat arcade game. Yeah. How do you show
1: that game to make it so it seems special? I think for me, the way I just, once I knew it was special, I liked it. I liked teasing it just a hair. So the other side would use a shot where it's it's being framed on the side, as so though it's a shoulder, and you know, over over the shoulder of the game. So, so the oh, people that so the people that really know it, they're like, oh, yeah, they're like, they think they've the seen game? something that, yeah. that that you're not going to reveal exactly. And and then I wait just a hair because I went back to Pedro because I'm just giving them a little bit of a little rope to to wait to see it, and then it cuts around and you see Mortal Kombat, and you go, that's the game. And then I specifically wanted to show her using the controls because the controls are later on, you see the, how important it was that she learned how to use the controls from Riley. And so these are little things that I, I, I always like to say, people are gonna, if they decide to go back and watch the series again, they're gonna see these little details that we put in early on that are gonna pay off later, but only on a second viewing. And I usually go up to 17 viewings. I always say, well, on the 17th time, people might notice this. <laughs> and sometimes I've, I've seen people see things 17 times. They'll so say, I've seen this off like 17 times. I go, okay, cool. But did you see all the things I put in there for you? Because on the 17th time, you, you better have seen this thing because I really laid it out there for you. <laughs> that's, that's very funny.
0: I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you guys want to chat about with either specific scenes or things that you really think are important that editors might
1: be interested in knowing? I have one, actually. Sure. Um, and it's it's an interesting one. At the end of episode five, there was a long conversation between Ellie and Sam, who's the young deaf boy. And it was a, almost a six minute scene. And it was a really difficult scene in my opinion, because it's a scene where there's very little dialogue because he's deaf. And so they, they literally can't speak. And he has this magic slate that he's using to talk to her. And he has this little pen lifts off the little, little Xerox portion or whatever it is, the yep. little carbon. Yeah. I mean, we all had that when we were growing up. Well, at least, you know, I, I did yeah exactly <laughs> Steve and I did uh maybe not you, Emily youngster yeah. so you had video games by then had, exactly
0: I, we, we had, had to play we had to play with a piece of plastic and some exactly. carbon piece of that, and was, some that carbon. was our
1: fun yep, and that was the best we had but there was a that was a tricky scene, and editorially, I, I thought like this can get repetitive very quickly, and it worried me because it was sort of the same thing happening over and over, and how can I possibly A, make this not feel repetitive and B, make sure that it is emotionally working? And I saw a shot and it was later in the sequence where Ellie was silhouetted behind a light in a profile. And I recognized when I was looking at that, it made me think of religious icons and saints and whatnot. And it made me look at the story again and read the scene again and and say, you know what, I think the cinematographer and the director have hit on something here, maybe inadvertently, maybe not, but she believes that she can save him from, because she has some sort of power that they have been telling her this whole time. You, you're special. You have this thing, you're, you're immune, you're this, you're that. And she believes then that she has this sort of saintly power. That she can rescue this poor boy who's been infected, and is probably going to turn into a, a full-on infected, and she has this wonderful sequence with him, where she basically has to tell him, "I will promise you that you're going to be okay." And, and here, look, my blood is, is is medicine, and in doing so, editorially, that I tried to have a situation where every time they would speak by the magic slate, I wouldn't never, I'd never use the same tactic. I said, well, this, in this version of it, I want to see him watch writing and then to reveal the sign at the very end from his perspective. And then in this version, I want to see what she's writing because I don't, it's as, as important for impact. So I can actually watch her write it down and then show his reaction to being shown the piece of material. So you always, the audience always knew what was happening, but it was always from a different perspective. And I think that's what made the six minute sort of dialogue scene without dialogue, not feel repetitive. And I'm really, really proud of how that scene turned out. Because again, I always, I always go back to two person scenes. I I find those to be the most satisfying. I don't know what it is. I, I guess in an action scene, things have to happen in a certain manner. Not always, but like in general, but in a dialogue scene with two characters, anything is possible. And so when you can do it in such a way that hopefully the audience never feels like they're bored or they're always interested in what's happening or there's an emotional turn that happens. That sequence to me is is right up there with some of the best things I've ever done because I spent, I think, a full day on that guy. I, and again, I understand that my audience is not just the audience out in the world, but the audience of editors, the audience of filmmakers who go, ah, look at that. They're just doing the same thing over and over again. It's like, I know that. There's a high degree of difficulty here when you want to impress the people in your field. And this was one of those sequences where I feel like I really put it all out there for a six minute dialogue scene. And it had to be without music. Also, there was nothing that could guide you until the very end when she realized that or when she thought that she was promising him this, that she was going to protect him. So it was a risky thing and I'm super proud of how it turned out and super proud of how the end turned out having again, no music for the sequence where the two brothers end up dying because that was a really. Heart-wrenching scene to put together, and I knew it couldn't have any music. There was no no music re- required. That was too devastating to need any kind of commentary whatsoever. So those are that's the sequence that I I just really wanted to talk briefly about. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. To.
0: Yeah, Emily, one of your scenes that you wanted to talk about that might be revealing of the craft or or your hard work.
2: I think for me, one of the more challenging scenes, but also one of my favorite scenes that I got to work on is the scene where Anna gives birth to Ellie, but it's also, it's not just the birth part. It's the, it's her running up to the farmhouse and running away from an infected. There were so many different things going on in that sequence. And first of all, it it was the opening of the episode. And so you have, you know, it's the opening, it's gotta catch us, but it's like, you have a horror element of her being chased by this infected, but then we also have this, thing going on where she's giving birth so we had to incorporate a lot of things into this scene while also like not being too confusing like we want people to know like she's gonna give birth she's being chased by an infected so I think for me just kind of weaving in these ideas of being scared her giving birth and also while also hiding in this house was pretty difficult in a way. And we also used a lot of sound in that sequence where she finally gets up to this like top room and she's kind of hiding from this infected woman who's been chasing her. And throughout the scene, one thing that's really cool about the sound in that scene is you hear the infected's voice, like her screaming, and it's getting closer and closer slowly as we go on. So you know she's like closing in on Anna as Anna's trying to find a place to hide. So that was something we had tempted from the very beginning. And then once Anna is up in this room kind of hiding, you hear this infected break in. So the, all these sounds that we had to incorporate, all this temp sound design work that went into it, it was a lot of work. But it was one of my favorite scenes to work on just because you have that nice moment at the end. Once she does give birth to Ellie, you get then you turn the scene that's like this horrific scene into something that's then beautiful. So I got to touch on a lot of different genres of a scene. And I think that was a great exercise for me to do. And I'm very proud of that scene as well. Yeah. And you see,
1: you seamlessly executed those, those tonal transitions. I was, that's that's what I I was
0: just about to say. It's the tonal transitions that are difficult there because you're so scary, but you're also this amazing moment of birth. That's the opposite, you know, Yeah, this motherly moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so powerful.
2: Yeah. It was very powerful to work on. And just like, even again, like watching the dailies, I was like, this is just the best stuff ever to get to work on. And, and so like when you get to get to that part where you're in that little bubble with her and Ellie and, and you just feel that it, it just is everything. So yeah, it was great.
0: Do you guys ever get out of breath when you're cutting scene? That happens to oh. me. Sometimes. Like All the time.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> all the time. All the time. Every, every Every day. And usually I get out of breath a lot of times because I'm running around to different offices saying, "Hey, can you can you watch this? Can you watch this?" <laughs> That's um, not what I meant. I know, I know, I know. But still, <laughs> no, no, I do, I do, yeah, I, I do
2: too. Yeah, the dailies and and also like the storylines stick with me. Like I'll find myself like going home, and I just feel like sometimes when we're working on these scenes that are really heavy, or like one of the characters have died, like like I actually feel like emotional over over these deaths of the characters in the show and. And it's definitely something that sticks with me because these characters mean so much to me, and and, and so when I w- when we were working on the show, I definitely felt affected by it, even when I when I was going home. So, yeah,
1: it, it's a lot. Hundred percent, and Craig, I kept telling him like, "Why do you have to keep killing all these people?" For like, it's like really hard for us. Yeah, he's like I, I, we've taken everybody out, you know. And and he's like, he said, like, "Yeah, yeah, that's what I do." So, I'm like, <laughs> do you feel right. like
0: you need to do an, another show where people just go to a nice?
1: island and have
0: fun for the whole time
1: yeah exactly you would think a nice palate cleanser would be
0: i just need somebody to sit in the hammock for yeah. a day and read a
1: book right yeah. perfect
0: be a little boring to edit but that's okay stressful yeah emily and tim thank you so much for chatting with art of the cut today and i really enjoyed hearing about everything that went into this show that i i was definitely affected by and i think many people were thank you thank, thank you, you so much Steve.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it.
0: That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Timothy Good, ACE, and Emily Mendez for joining me on Art of the Cut. Thanks to Sam Rosenberg for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at, at Steve Ulfisch.